Hey, glad that you're here. We're going to get into this thing because uh, I really don't like teaching this. Um, but I'm not going to ignore the Bible either. So we're working our way through it. If you haven't been with us, we've worked our way through Acts. Paul's on his second missionary journey. He's been in Thessalonica. He got basically kicked out of the city for preaching Jesus and disturbing the peace and... If he went back to Thessalonica, then uh, his buddies there that kind of hosted him would be booted out as well or arrested. So Timothy, his buddy, has come and um, told him about the things that are happening in Thessalonica. Some great things are happening, great testimony about their faith, their love for one another, taking care of one another through the just the all the pressures that they're dealing with being martyrs for Jesus and he says they got they got two things they've got the whole sexual thing which we talked about a couple of weeks ago uh that was the atmosphere the water that they were swimming in and he kind of said hey just remember that you're holy redeemed you're set apart from everybody else and you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and because you have that Holy Spirit living inside of you, you don't have to live like them in this sexual culture. Then, last week we talked about the end of chapter 4. They were concerned about, they knew Jesus was coming back. They just, nobody knows when Jesus is coming back. But they were concerned about their loved ones and their friends that had had died since Jesus was crucified in 30 AD, and now it's probably 50 AD, 20 years after Jesus' death, they're waiting for him to come back. What about all those people that have died in the last 20 years? What's happened to them? And I took the last part of chapter 4, and I brought it to you and presented it to you in the, the context that, that I believe Paul intended for it to be. And that was from a pastoral perspective. Just chill out. Relax. You have a hope you have a hope that those who are not believers don't have. You're going to grieve loss. You're going to suffer, but you are different and set apart because Jesus is coming back and your hope is in Jesus. So we took that from a pastoral perspective. Now I'm going to go back and pick up those same verses, chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. And reread them again because this is where he also talks about the hope that we have. Jesus is returning. It's end times. We call this eschatology. That's a big seminary word for talking about the study of end times. Uh, I don't like talking about the end times because I can read about it in the scripture and everything else, but I honestly don't have a clue how it's going to turn out. I have an idea, I have a good idea, and I think this is what Paul rests in today. But let's just break this down a little bit. Verse 13, it says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep. Remember, last week we said that was a euphemism for those who have already died. So that you will not grieve like the rest, the rest being the non-believers who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, remember he said, if we believe, like, this is a for sure, we believe this, right? 
Everybody in here believes that Jesus died and rose again. It's the same thing he was believing about the church in Thessalonica. He says, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring him those bring him those who have fallen asleep. If Jesus was buried and rose again, why wouldn't he do the same for us? It says, for we say this to you by a word from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming, that's the first place I'm going to pause, at the Lord's coming. The coming here in the Greek text is the word perusia. I'm not trying to impress you with my Greek reading in my software. I cut and paste. It's that simple. But the word perusia is comes with a huge definition here. It says, We who are still alive at the Lord's coming, the perusia, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul literally referred to the Lord's coming as perusia, a term that commonly meant This glorious coming, it was a huge deal, it was a big deal of a deity or some kind of official uh, visit in a sovereignty to the city. They saw them sometimes as being divine. Uh, An imperial visit. What does an imperial visit look like during those times? It came with great pomp and circumstance. Magnificent celebrations, Uh, rich banquets, everybody came to town. It was like the happening that was going to... They even minted coins after these celebrations, and they developed crowns, and it was a huge deal. And and Paul's literally saying, the Lord's coming is going to be a huge event. Like, you're not going to be able to ignore this. Verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He just said, there's going to be three loud experiences that happen right here. He said, he'll descend from heaven with a shout. God is going to shout. Anybody ever heard God shout? Not verbally, not audibly. With the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God. So I'm excited because baseball is coming back this week. But to literally sit at a baseball game and they play that music, and everybody yells, charge. This is exactly what we're talking about right here. Is that he's coming back with this loud voice and he's coming in with this determination as a captain of maybe a row team or something like that. And we're coming fast and furious. So the first command has, again, it's the idea of spoken that somebody has power and authority at some time of great importance or maybe some kind of excitement. I looked up the word trumpet of God. Out of those, th- out of those three things, the trumpet of God, when, when has the Bible ever talked about the trumpet of God? This is it. This is it. I, I, 
I even search historically for it. Has anybody ever heard the trumpet of God? I can't find it. Some people say it's there. I can't find it. I would think if God shouted, if the archangel uh, proclaimed something, if the trumpet of God happened, that there would be a phenomenal record of it. Right? Like Jesus was buried and he rose again and there's at least 500 people that saw it. There's testimony of Jesus raising from the dead. But historically, I can't, it could have happened. I don't know. There's a belief out there that it happened in 70 AD, 20 years after this was written. That when Rome came in to destroy Jerusalem, remember Jerusalem rose up against Rome and they said, hey, sorry about you, we're coming in. And they basically killed 1.1 million Jews, according to Josephus, the historian. That this was the time that the Lord returned. That's one point of view. But I struggle with that. I struggle with that because I don't see the whole archangel thing, the whole trumpet of God thing. You think about uh, back then, a funeral procession had trumpets that were were sounding. When Claudius, Emperor Claudius was was buried, they had these loud trumpets, so loud that they thought that it would raise the dead. And this is literally what God is saying by this idea in this verse. It's simply that the dead would hear this great sound, this trumpet of call of God, and they would respond to it, and they would rise from the dead. But then look at verse 17. It says, Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together. That's another Greek word. The Greek word is harpazo. Harpazo. Let me finish the verse. It says, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. Another Greek word. That word is apentesis. It says, I'll read the whole verse. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together, harpazo, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, apentesis, in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. I throw those Greek words in there because this is what has been translated as the rapture. There's no word for rapture in the Bible. It's not there. Like the, com- the common, here's the common belief among believers. It's the predominant one. That a rapture is going to occur and all the Christians that are here alive on the earth are going to be taken up in the air and taken back to heaven with Jesus and then there's going to be seven years of tribulation and the Antichrist is going to appear in the middle of that tribulation and then Jesus is going to come back and take care of, take care of the Antichrist and then there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth. That's the basics, okay, of the common belief. That's the basics. There's many, many, many more opinions. I was playing... Uh, a card game last night with somebody who's kind of intellectual and he said he said to me that uh you know that you can arrange the 52 cards in so many different ways that there's more ways to arrange a deck of 52 cards than there are atoms in the world i don't know if i bought that or not but 
it's kind of the same thing with the end times. I think there's so many views and opinions out there that making sense of it because they'll take the rapture and move it over here. They'll take the they'll take the uh, seven years of tribulation and move it over here, and you get this whole mixture of end times. And that's really why I don't teach it. John Calvin, I don't have much in common with John Calvin. Uh, he's a theologian, but that dude wrote uh, a commentary on every book in the Bible except one, Revelation. He didn't touch it. And that's pretty much why said in here, I, I'm not teaching Revelation here. There's just too many opinions and it's something that hasn't occurred yet. But this word harpazo, it's found here in verse 16 and 17. And this is where, again, we get the word, the idea that rapture has come from this. It's Greek. It's translated into repio, which is where we get the word rapture. It's a noun, rapture. There's pretty strong evidence that the word, harp, which was a verb, harpizo, was used rather widely in the ancient world. What happened, what uh, they would say is someone would die is that they were snatched and taken to another world by their gods. That they either died and they were snatched to heaven or they were died and they were snatched and taken to the underworld. And so Paul has literally taken this word and he's saying that the believers, remember he's just trying to comfort them at this point, he's saying to the believers, you have been harpizoed, you have been snatched as you meet the Lord in the air, right? You've been snatched up, but not snatched up to death, but to life beyond life. It's literally what he's saying here. He's taking a word that was used in the ancient world to mean something, and he's pointing at something else that is similar. And then the word apotensis was almost, it was a technical term that described the custom of sending a delegation. There was uh, outside of the city to receive some kind of military or dignitary who was on the way to town. So literally, when the dignitary, the honorable person, the king, the, the leader would come into town, everybody would go out and meet them. There would be this celebration, this party, this he's coming to town to celebrate, and literally that's what he's saying is like, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, those who are alive will go and meet the Lord in the air. It never says that he turns around and takes them back to heaven. It, if this is the word, apentesis, if that's the word, it literally meant they went to meet him and they were going to come back with him. They're literally going to come back with him on that day, that time. I want to read to you uh, real quick. Polybius spoke of the great pomp of such occasions. And author after author described how not only certain officials, but also the population would file out of the city to meet the emperor in his perusia, perusia being his appearing. Josephus, which I've already mentioned here as a Jewish historian, 
for example, tells how the citizens of Rome went out to meet Vespasian. This is like actual history. It says, as their new emperor, who, by the way, had just come from leading the Roman troops in the battles to quell the Jewish rebellion that began in 64 AD. And this is what he said. Admits, there's some big words in here, so just hang with me. Admit such feelings of universal goodwill, those of higher rank, impatient of awaiting him, hasten to a great distance from Rome to be the first to greet Apentesis, him. Nor, indeed, could any of the rest endure the delay of meeting, but all poured forth in such crowds, for all it seems simpler and easier to go than to remain." that the very city then for the first time experienced with satisfaction the paucity of inhabitants. For those who went outnumbered those who remained. But when he was reported to be approaching and those who had gone ahead were, were telling of the affability of his reception of each party, the whole remaining population with wives and children were, now, were by now waiting at the roadsides to receive him. And each group as he passed in their delight as the spectacle and moved by the blandness of his appearance gave vent to all manners of cries hailing him as benefactor, savior, and only worthy emperor of Rome. The whole city, moreover, was filled like a temple with garlands and incense. He's literally saying, look, you guys are very familiar with this appendices. You've seen it happen locally. And this is what's going to happen when the Lord returns. We're going to go meet him, and we're coming back with him. It's not the first time it was used in Scripture. In Matthew 25, verse 6, there's other occurrence when he's talking about the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. We read how the virgins, all of them went out to Apentesis to meet the bridegroom. And then once the bridegroom comes, what happens? Do they take off with them on the honeymoon? <laughs> well, of course not. The wedding hasn't even happened yet. They go back to the wedding. Then you look in Acts chapter 28, verse 15. Another occurrence of Apentesis. It's the context Paul has appeared to Caesar, and so he's on this perilous journey to appear before Nero himself. And there are Christians in Rome who hear that Paul's coming, so naturally, what do they do? They go meet Paul as he comes to Rome. I don't know what's going to happen in the end. I can only read right here and tell you what it says. I'm not worried about it. Watch what he says, his last verse in verse 18. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Not the words of what's going to happen in the end. Not those words. But the words that you have hope in the midst of your grief. You have hope in the midst of your, your loved ones being gone in the circumstances that we're living in, you have hope, unlike the others. Do not forget what his intent is here. But then he answers the next question. We get to chapter 5. We get to chapter 5, and, he, and now the people are not only worried about the people who have died, but what about us who are living? 
What about us who are living? What about this God of wrath? Are we going to face the wrath of God? It's interesting. uh, He transitions from talking about their loved ones that have died, but now he's talking about them. We have these two passages which both deal with the second coming of Jesus, but for two different audiences. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I'll say this. Uh, the, for some reason, you and believers are more interested in the end times uh, than almost Jesus himself. I, as a youth minister, I, I always said, uh, there's three things that the teenagers want to know, and I believe that the adults are somewhat uh, similar, is they always wanted to know what the will of God was for their life. What am I going to be doing? Well, adults do that too. A second question the teenagers always wanted to know is how far is too far when it comes to sex? <laughs> it's teenagers. I'm not giving that answer today. Uh, and then the third question is they wanted to know about the end times. They were always interested in the end times. And in 1970, Hal Lindsey wrote a book called what? The Great Late Planet Earth. And it sold one million copies. One million copies because people were interested in 1970 what's going to happen in the end times. Then there was another guy that came along. His name was Edgar Wisenant. And he wrote this book called 88 Reasons Why the Lord's Going to Return in 1988. He sold 4.5 million copies of that book. Obviously, Jesus didn't return in 1988, so he wrote another book right after it. (laughs) Then... Then, in 1995, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins began writing a series of books called Left Behind. Sixteen books that lasted till 2007, from 1995 to 2007. They even wrote a a series for the teenagers to read The Left Behind, and it was it was a fictional story about how this all plays out, and they pretty much followed the pattern that I talked to you about earlier. Kirk Cameron even starred in two or three movies of Left Behind. 65 million copies sold. You tell me that people aren't interested in the end times and knowing what's going to happen according to the scripture because they are. Sometimes more importantly than understanding who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And, And the real question that Paul is trying to answer here is, are you ready for that day? That's that's the real question. Whatever day it is, no matter what happens, what it looks like, are you ready for that day? It's just kind of like the same thing happened to most of you in this room. Y2K, are you ready for that day? Obviously, nothing happened. But that's the same question that Paul's really asking here. They were 
worried whether they were worthy enough to avoid judgment. Are we going to stand before God in judgment? They had this general concern about the timing and when's it going to happen, what's it going to look like, what's going to happen to us. It's always about us, right? It doesn't seem like the problem is about knowledge. Rather, it's one of, really one of anxiety, one of apprehension and fear about what's going to happen on the day of the Lord. Now watch this, verse 1. It says, About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. All right. So up to this point in the letter, three times Paul has used the first term coming. That word perusia, the appearance. He used it in 219, he used it in 313, and the one that we just read in chapter 4. Now he says something different. The day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord concept is different than this appearing. It really has its roots in the Old Testament, where it refers to a future time when God would come to do what? Judge the wicked. That this God that we've they've read about, look, they just have gotten Paul's letter to them, but they have the Old Testament with the prophets in it, and the prophets have spoken about this God and this day of the Lord that's coming. Uh, listen to this. This is just a few of the selections taken out of the prophets. Joel chapter 2, verse 31 says, The sun, my, my translation may be different, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, but before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Zephaniah 3 8 says this where God says that he will pour out my wrath on them all my fierce anger the whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger they have these verses they're reading these verses about God they're anxious some of you grew up with this mentality that God is going to judge you in this great white throne judgment. Jeremiah 46.10 says this, But that day belongs to the Lord, the Lord Almighty, a day of vengeance, for vengeance on his foes. The sword will devour till it is satisfied, till it has quenched its thirst with blood. Obadiah 15 says, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return from upon your own head. Amos 5, 18 through 20 says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on a wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? They thought this was happening to them. If you thought this was happening to you, you'd be freaking out too. 
And so literally they're saying to Timothy back in Thessalonica, what about these verses from Amos and Jeremiah and Obadiah and all these about what if we're alive and he's coming back, is it going to be this bad? Are we facing that? Watch what he says. Verse 3. When they say peace and security, those are in quotations, when they say, even Paul says they, when they say, peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. You know, uh, in this context and in this verse he's getting ready to say you the word you to them and he's going to comfort them by saying you have no reason to fear the day of the lord but paul in this reference right here is making this clear allusion not 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 a subtle one at all to the propaganda that the roman state has brought upon them Literally, the Roman state has said, we will bring you peace and security. But at the same time, the Romans were the one that were going to destroy them. Yeah, some things never change for sure. We'll bring you peace and security. But at the same time, they're the exact ones that destroyed them. Hadn't destroyed them yet but they were going to. And Paul's literally taking the words of the Romans and saying, this is what you've been promised. This is what you've heard. As he says in the rest of this verse, he'll also proclaim peace and security, but with a different reason. Watch verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, you, you, are not in the dark, for the day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. He did a good pastoral thing right there. He repeated himself twice. He actually says, you are children of the light, children of the day. But then he said the exact same thing. He just reversed it. You don't belong to the night or the darkness. Let me say this again. You are children of the light. You're different than the rest of the world. Verse 6. He says, So then, let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, we're different than those of the night. We, all, you, are different than the rest of the world. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of hope of salvation. He literally has taken these contrasting metaphors and reaffirmed to them who they actually are. He hasn't said at this point, you're not going through the judgment. Did you hear this? He hasn't said at this point, you're not going through the judgment. What's he doing? 
He's reminding them of their identity. Stay focused on who you are and what you've been made. You are children of the day. You are the light of the world. All that stuff the Romans in contrast to, the darkness of the world, the night, that is not you. Watch. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Look, they were worried whether or not they were going to be able to avoid the judgment that was connected with that end-time day. But Paul's literally saying, hey, you've looked, you've experienced salvation. Let me say this to you clearly. How many times did Jesus die on the cross? Really? How many times did Jesus die on the cross? Once. Is Jesus getting back up on the cross again? The reason Jesus is not getting back up on the cross again is because his blood was shed and it was poured out as a sacrifice for all of our sins. That was 2,000 years ago, before you were even present. He took care of your sin issue before you were even born. Like everything that you've done in the past, everything that you're currently doing, and everything that you're going to do in the future, he's already taken care of. That sounds like a license to just, hey, go out and do whatever you want. That might be the case, but if you have a new heart and you're a new creation, you're not going to want to do that. I'm teaching grace and freedom and identity. You have been forgiven. You have been made holy. You have been redeemed. So why in the world would I even think that on the Lord's day, when wrath is going to come and judgment is going to come, is that I'm going to suffer for my sin when he's already died one time and taken care of all my sin? Do you hear that? Like... I am not facing that wrath. I'm not facing that judgment. There's actually two judgments mentioned in the scripture. There's the great white throne judgment, which is basically uh, the whole sheep and the goats, those who believed and those who didn't. I, I, that's not me. I, there's another judgment that he talks about. It's the judgment seat of Christ. And that judgment seat of Christ is literally... We're going to talk about all the things that I've done in my life as a believer. And anything that I did in my own strength, my own flesh, pretty much got burned up on <laughs> at that judgment. Like, that is sin. If I'm teaching to you today out of my own strength and not the support of the Holy Spirit, and I'm, you know... It's all about me or whatever. That's sin, even though it's a good thing. If I'm sitting up here dependent upon the Holy Spirit to teach, to lead, to speak through me, I'm resting, and uh, that's the only thing that's going to be left at the judgment seat is what Jesus Christ did through me. Not me doing it in my own flesh, my own strength. 
it's going to be an awesome day of judgment. It's not going to be like what they're worried about. All that stuff that the Old Testament prophets were talking about, that's talking about the non-believers. That's the wrath that they're going to face. My judgment's going to be pretty cool, I believe. Based upon what I read, based upon what he's saying, literally what he's saying right there, to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that wrath's not appointed for me. Literally, he took all my sin upon himself at the cross, and he forgave me. And now I walk and I live in a state of forgiveness. I still sin. I still mess up. It's totally against my nature of who he's made me to be. He took my old heart out, placed it with a new heart. I don't want to sin when I do. But I still do it. I still make selfish decisions. I still walk by my flesh occasionally. It's getting better because I get to know him more. The more I get to know him, the easier it comes to trust him and to rest in him and like, okay, Lord, do this. I have no idea what's going on. You ever been there? Lord, I have no idea what's going on with this COVID thing. I see stats. I see two sides. I see division. I see, Lord, uh, I'm going to focus on you. That's the deal. The evil one wants to distract us, wants to divide us, wants to split us. And I think he's literally just saying, stay focused. Watch now. The last verse I cover today is verse 11 therefore encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing this is what they were doing in Thessalonica they were already doing it he's like keep doing it keep it going leavener keep loving one another keep taking care of one another keep discipling one another once again Paul is being very pastoral here He's encouraging them the best that he can. He's saying, stay focused. Stay focused on what you know is true, what Paul and Timothy and Silas have taught you. Focus on that. You're good for the final day. Don't think about it. Don't worry about it. You have salvation. You have forgiveness. You have been made holy. You are righteous. You are redeemed. You are justified just as if you've never sinned. He has made you perfect who you are. Hebrews. Keep encouraging one another in this truth. Keep reminding each other this truth. You're going to have some crazy thoughts come your way this week. Keep reminding each other what your hope is. My hope is Jesus Christ. Stay focused, stay focused, stay focused. Father, that's my prayer is that we as a a body of believers, we as a community can rest, just rest in our salvation of you and the grace that you give us every day to go through this fallen world and this whacked out, circumstances that are all around us and we have to trust you we have to trust you with every breath that we take 
with every step that we make. I pray that you will watch over my friends, my family, my brothers and sisters, that you will protect us, that you will keep us safe, that you bring us back here next Sunday, and uh, we can just enjoy you this week without anxiousness, without fear. And we love you and thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen.